Our next speaker is Professor Roz Gledo. Roz is the coordinator of the core undergraduate science program at Monash University and leads the plant ecophysiology eco group. <laughs> she, she researches the effect of climate change on the nutritional value of plants with a special interest in plants that make cyanide. You can follow her on Twitter uh, at Roz Gledo. Ladies and gentlemen, Roz. Thank you. Yes, I am a, a plant physiologist. That means I study how plants work. I started doing that because I started doing botany and I could never remember what anything was called. So I had to decide I had to work out what they did instead. <laughs> so a great opportunity tonight to tell people about a plant scientist. I mean, it's 100 years this month since the birth of Norman Borlaug, who was the father of the Green Revolution and the developer of the dwarf wheats, who's fed so many people. It's why we can all be fat today is because of him. Uh, but no, I decided no, I wouldn't talk about Norman, even though he's a great hero. And then I thought, wow, this week is International Women's Day. What a great opportunity to profile a woman scientist. This would always be my default. Uh, what about someone like Mary Somerville? She's the reason we're called scientists. Did you know that? Because up until then, uh, in the 1830s, they were always called men of science. But she was such a good mathematician and physicist and astronomer and uh, was the first woman member of, of the Royal Astronomical Society. They actually had to change the name to scientist for her. So there you go. But I'm actually not going to talk about her either, <laughs> even though she's a hero. I was thinking about a hero. What is a hero? And we've heard stories tonight. People who have courage, people who are brave, people who persevere in adversity. And I think we've heard those stories tonight already from others who have spoken. I'm going to talk tonight about someone who does all these things and is currently do them, doing them. Someone I know, someone who's an excellent scientist, does beautiful science and yet has in fact suffered enormous persecution, vilification, slander and undermining. And the person I'm going to talk about is in fact not a plant scientist and not a female, it's Michael E. Mann who is a paleoclimatologist and a geophysicist. You can follow him on Twitter on at Michael E. Mann if you want to. Uh, it's very interesting to follow him. So why is Michael E. Mann so interesting? Well, he is known for something that you've probably heard of, and I did actually print out a copy just in case you mightn't have seen it. It's this. This is the hockey stick graph, that's called. And what it shows is that basically over the last thousand years, the rise in temperatures that we've seen in the last 100 to 150 years is unprecedented. Of course, now we have data going back much further than that, but this was his paper that he published in 1999. In fact, it looked pretty ugly and black in the original paper. This is the colour version that appeared in the IPCC third assessment report in 2001, and he was a lead author, and they put this in the summary for policymakers, and it basically at that point all hell broke loose. Uh, because really, if you look at this, and uh, I'll have to describe it a little bit better with a hockey stick, so I'll just, I've got a hockey stick here, because I'm an Australian, and this is a hockey stick. <laughs> Hang on. It took me a while when I heard it called a hockey stick graph, I couldn't work it out, you know. So this, this what I thought was a hockey stick, and then I realised, uh, it's an American hockey stick, which is a nice hockey stick. So it's this shape. <laughs> so, uh, so I actually hunted around and found one of these from one of my Facebook friends. So this is, this is a hockey stick graph. So basically the shaft of the hockey stick, if you think uh, 
On your left is about, a you know, about the year 1000, like that's before William the Conqueror, that's a pretty long time ago. Uh, temperatures have fluctuated up and down uh, over that time. And then where it kicks up is around about the late 19th century and the temperature increases. So if this is true, and this correlates with uh, the expansion of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the rising of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, you can have two reactions. One is you think, wow, carbon dioxide is a heat-trapping heat gas. It's rising in the atmosphere and the climate's getting warmer. I know, let's not have so much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. That's a good idea. But the other way is to say, that's rubbish. Let's get rid of this. Let's smash up the hockey stick. And in the process, let's destroy the person who created it. So why the different reactions? Well, I think one is that you can really be interested in the science and you understand how it works. And the other is that you can, may have a vested interest. And Michael E. Mann has often talked about the people who attack him who've come from uh, industries that are funded at, or have benefit from mining of fossil fuels or energy and so on. And that, that is true. There's no doubt that there's a, there's a big sort of climate change denial machine out there which is about right, trying to destroy that science because they're vested interests. But I actually think there's another aspect to it which is not... I really haven't heard people talk about this much, but it actually challenges our view of our place on Earth. Because what we're really challenging is that we, as little humans, collectively can have a huge impact on the environment. And that actually fundamentally addresses our relationship with the planet. And in much the same way, other times when people have challenged our place, our view of ourselves in the world, they've reached opposition. And the obvious example is someone like Galileo. He challenged our view of our place of being the centre of the solar system and the universe. And that really a lot of that opposition was to do with that. Uh, Darwin's theories of evolution challenges our view of us being uh, our position in life as being something special rather than being connected to all the other animals. So there's this sort of fundamental um, opposition to that. Okay, so I think what I need to do is to, uh, to unpack this a little bit more. And, and I think the, f the other thing to say is that, of course, if you destroy uh, Michael Mann and destroy his work, <laughs> you actually don't destroy all the work of thousands of climate scientists, right? So when I, I teach this course in scientific practice and communication and, and I, I have this little Yoda-like character on a slide and I tell the students that, you know, one paper does not the science make. You know, it, one paper is not what science is. Science is the body of information that builds up. So, in fact, even to destroy Michael Mann actually wouldn't change it. But anyway, nevertheless, these people have done it. And he's been vilified. Uh, his book, The Hockey Stick and the Climate, the Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, um, is uh, been around for a few years, but it's currently receiving massive hits on Amazon with really abusive reviews at the moment. So, there's a really quite an orchestrated campaign. So. You know, it's pretty amazing. I mean, you could, when you get attacked like that, you know, you can either respond to it and, and go for the fight, and that takes an enormous amount of bravery and heroism, or you can retreat to the ivory tower or, or work on something else. I mean, I just saw a little tiny bit of this once when I published some stuff that showed that high CO2 wasn't necessarily good for plants, or certainly not good for the animals that eat it. And suddenly I started getting all these sort of horrible emails, and I thought, wow, you know, this guy has this every day, every year, since 1998. You know, that's a really long time. 
So before I unpack the hockey stick a bit more, uh, just tell you a little bit about Michael Mann, where he comes from. He uh, was born in 1965 in Amherst, Massachusetts. His father was a mathematician. And at school, he was always good at maths and physics. And one of the things that he was interested in in the early 80s was what could you teach a computer to think or to make decisions? And he decided he would try and write an algorithm uh, to teach a computer to play what we would call noughts and crosses, what in America they would call tic-tac-toe. And he, there's a certain number of, limited number of options and it's something that you could do with a computer. But at the time, computers were not uh, very powerful. And so he came up with this really neat idea, this little trick that realised that, that the screen is in fact, uh, the board is in fact symmetrical, so you only need to make half as many decisions as you might otherwise because they, they apply across. So. That, that was a really neat trick and mathematicians call those kind of elegant solutions to problems a trick, okay? And I think all of us do it in science. If anyone else in science, you, you, you can call it that. Uh, that. And that's relevant later on. So then he did his bachelor's degree at Berkeley. He then went and did his PhD at Yale where he was going to continue as a physicist. Uh, he wanted to do a PhD in condensed matter physics. Uh, I shouldn't really be talking about that because I really don't understand it. Uh, but he did the two years worth of coursework that they do there got to the end and then they said, well, actually, we haven't got any funding for that sort of physics. Will you work on something else? He didn't want to do that, so he wandered off down to the geology department and they uh, had this cool project looking at paleoclimates and they needed some interesting maths to, to understand it and how they worked and he thought that was cool. So he said, signed up for a PhD there, but they said, actually, you've got to do all the geology coursework as well. So he had to go back and do another two years of coursework before he started his actual PhD. So if any of you have got a PhD or thinking of getting one, he was four years before he even actually got to start his project. So uh, don't worry if you're taking a long time. Um, so uh, so the, from there, he and as part of that, he developed these mathematical methods. And uh, from there, he moved on to back to, to Amherst, to his uh, hometown, and worked with some people on, on climate change. From there, he went to the University of Virginia for a while, and then eventually on to Penn State University, where he is now as a distinguished professor. Okay, so let's go back to the hockey stick and unpack that a little bit. Um, I was just gonna say, I met him in uh, December 2012 at the conference of the American Geophysical Union, which is the largest uh, uh, society of geoscientists in the world, it's so large that they even accommodate people like me who work on plants and climate change as well. And he was being made a fellow, which is a really high honour. Uh, they only make 1% uh, of the membership a fellow each year and I was there actually because my significant other, who's actually here tonight, that's another professor in the room, was also being made a, a fellow that night. And uh, so we met Michael Mann as part of that process. And, and I was just impressed with what an incredibly nice guy he was. What a, what a just a kind of like an ordinary bloke. And yet he's having to deal with all this stuff and also really just scarily smart as well. Um, and so in the middle of all this, he's trying to build a career. He's an early career researcher, mid-career researcher. And in the middle of doing all that, publications, look at his CV, he's teaching his courses, he's <coughs> grading papers, just like all the rest of us do. In the middle of that, he's like getting hauled up before Congress and he's got vitriolic um, articles being written about him in the newspaper. He's got poisonous blogs being written about him. He's... Uh, 
He had all his emails hacked because he was working with the people at East Anglia. He Imagine if you had all your emails released and spread out all over the internet. Not only that, the people kind of edit them so they didn't actually say what you said in the first place. So in the middle of all that, he's just doing that. But instead of retreating, he has fought back. He started a blog called realclimate.org. So that is something really worth looking at. Started that in two th 2004, which is pretty early for blogs. And uh, he's very active on Twitter. Uh, mostly, I've noticed, on about a Saturday afternoon. I've always wondered <laughs> how someone like that would have time for Twitter. And uh, he seems to mostly, unless at the moment where things are quite heated up at the moment, he usually seems to just tweet about once a week, like a whole lot. Okay, let's unpack this hockey stick. Okay, so here we have the hockey stick going along. In the bit that kicks up here, we've got good climate records from the last 100 years, 150 years, because we can measure the temperature with thermometers. In fact, you can measure the temperature now to within a millionth of a degree. And I know that must be true, because I read it on Yahoo Answers last night. <laughs> but as you go back, you know, first of all, thermometers get less accurate, and then you don't have any thermometers. So how do we know what the temperature was like back then? Well, you've got historical records. We knew that it was very cold at certain times. They had those ice fairs on the Thames. They had those, you've seen those Peter Bruegel paintings with everybody scooting around on the ice. We know it was really cold for a while. They call it the Little Ice Age. And we know from the crops that people planted that it was a bit warmer in the medieval period because of where the plants were. So what you can do is instead of directly measure the temperature, you can actually measure it by things called proxies. So you're not actually measuring the temperature, but you're measuring the record, the physical and biological record of what the temperature was at that time. And the main way, the most data has come from tree rings. So trees uh, make big rings when the growing is season is good, and they have small rings when the growing season is bad. And there's a lot of data from North America. And in fact, this hockey stick actually just referred to the Northern Hemisphere. It didn't cover the Southern Hemisphere. So there's a lot of tree ring data. But then there's other data as well. So there's uh, things like uh, ice, ice cores, there's lake sediments, there's pollen changes. There's a lot of different ways that you can measure the climate. And so how can you tell? Well, when layers of ice are laid down, they have little bubbles of air that get trapped in them as they get laid down. And if you extract those little bubbles of air, that's like a little time capsule of what the air was like when that that ice was laid down. That's, that's actually how we know that the carbon dioxide has been rising, is that can you measure how much carbon dioxide is in that air? But you can also tell what the temperature was, and that's uh, because of the oxygen, different types of oxygen. So most of the oxygen in the air uh, is made of oxygen 16, a certain type of oxygen, and then there's a, a small percentage is a heavier type of oxygen called oxygen 18. It's kind of same, same, but different. And it's the ratio of oxygen 18 to oxygen 16 changes depending on the temperature. It's very, a very good indicator of temperature. So you can measure that in ice cores, you can measure it in coral reefs, and you can measure it in a lot of different ways and gives you all that information. So what uh, Michael Mann and, and his colleagues, Bradley and Hughes, in this particular one did, is that they compiled all this data and actually put error bars around it. So it wasn't just a straight line, it actually kind of looks fuzzy. Um, around it and it took some really neat mathematics to be able to reconcile these things. A, a mathematical trick. 
which of course was later interpreted as being something deceptive, but it's not. It's just a really elegant form of mathematics. And the other thing that was really good about what they did is that they, they had another method where they had to look at what was the relative influence of the different types of data, because they're all measuring, you know, tree rings are measuring something a bit different from the ice, from the lake and so on. And so they, want, they wanted to see what would happen if you dropped out the different data sets. So you look at the temperature over the last thousand years, what happens if we uh, just have the tree rings? That, that's the dominant data, most of it's tree rings. Okay, you get something. What happens if we drop that out and we just look at the ice or we look at something else? So when you drop out the other data sets, that's called censoring the data. Censoring data doesn't sound good to someone who thinks that you're making up global warming. Uh, in Michael Mann said on his desktop he had this folder called Censored Data. He said, in retrospect, perhaps a very poor choice of name. <laughs> so, uh, I don't want to keep you too long, I'm getting too enthusiastic about this. But um, really, you know, when this came out, you know, he had his emails hacked and you may have heard about the East Anglia climate gate, as they called it, when the emails got released. Well, I mean, all those scientists have been completely exonerated by the multiple... Uh, inquiries that have happened but one of the quotes is great I'll just illustrate this it says they quote one of the guys to these two guys in East Anglia saying uh, quote Mike's we used Mike's nature trick to hide the decline okay the first thing is we shouldn't understand now what Mike's nature trick means that that's the maths he used in the nature paper the also need, need to know is that that phrase and then the next phrase that says hide the decline in the original email was separated by 23 words. So in fact they weren't connected. And then hide the decline, he explains this in his book but I don't kind of qu didn't quite understand it but it's to do with tree ring data actually post 1960 is not that accurate because of rising CO2 trees grow a whole lot better with the high CO2 and so you can't quite directly relate it back to, to earlier conditions. So it's, it's something to do with that. So you can see that the combination of sensor data, the tricks and hiding the decline, it makes it sound terrible. And, and really the, uh, the people who feel threatened by this, and this is not just vested interests, I'm sure it's people who just feel that it's somehow threatening our view of ourselves in the world. Uh, have really attacked this. And this is happening right now. Um, that what, so a couple of years ago, he was likened to a convicted pedophile, slandered. So he decided he would sue them. And now this is, the reason this is hotting up and made me think of it for this, this event tonight is that this is going to court right now, uh, whereas he is suing these guys for, basically for slander. Um, on an, and uh, that's, there's a lot happening there. A few years ago, he was... Uh, taken to court by the Attorney General, the elected official of University of Virginia, to basically, from freedom of information, have access to everything he did when he was employed by the University of Virginia, uh, for the, by the Attorney General of the state of Virginia. And uh, eventually, he fought that in the courts too, and eventually it was dismissed, what we would call a, a frivolous, um, you know, a frivolous uh, a, a case, so that didn't go ahead. But, so why have I chosen Michael Mann? I think I've chosen him because I think he's a current hero. I think this is something that's going through. He's currently being vilified, and you can read the, the history of the story in that book if you want to have a look at it. Um, but he's suffered personal abuse, and instead of retreating behind the wall of peer review, instead of retreating into the ivory tower, he's gone there on the front foot. And, and it's pretty scary, and, and 
he's probably pretty stubborn. He certainly knows what he's doing. And so I really admire him and think that it's great because someone's got to fight this battle and I'm just glad he's doing it so I don't have to do it. Thank you.